This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org slash podcast. And to make sure you never miss an episode, find us and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Welcome to the New York Public Library Podcast, where each week we bring you conversations with world-renowned authors, artists, and thinkers, recorded in front of a live audience in New York City. On this week's podcast, we're excited to welcome Oscar, Emmy, and Tony Award-winning actress Helen Mirren. Going back to her start with the Royal Shakespeare Company, Mirren's career has been heavily influenced by the works of legendary poet and playwright William Shakespeare. In this conversation with NYPL's Paul Holdengraber, to help mark the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death, Mirren reflects on the legacy of the prolific playwright and his impact on her life. Isn't this a magnificent room? It's my first time in this room. It's just so beautiful. I'm very excited. So am I. <laughs> so this unruliness of yours, this unruliness... To, I didn't say I was unruly. Uh, no, I? but I'm saying you Oh, are. I see. Um, <laughs> I ask you for seven words. Oh, I see, yes. Well, uh, no, it's not unruliness. It's trying to get it right, you know, thinking... Um, Trying to be, you know, to get it right. So, but maybe a few bending, goes. bending rules. Uh, yes, maybe. Yes, I don't know. Yes, um, uh, you know, it, 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 it's a, it was a, uh, it was a, a good little exercise actually. And I guess being an exercise, I wanted to keep uh, revisiting it to try and get it better. But um, student actress certainly was one a recurring theme. In the sense that I always feel that I'm learning, you know, still learning. I want to begin in part with a quotation of Peter Brook and have you react to it. In the empty space, he says, in the second half of the 20th century in England, where I'm writing these words, we are faced with the infuriating fact that Shakespeare is still our model. In this respect, our work on Shakespeare production is always to make the plays modern, because it is only when the audience comes into direct contact with the plays, themes, that time and conventions vanish. I wonder what you think about that comment. Well, I, I think he, he absolutely, as Peter Brook always does, kind of absolutely nails the essence of the beauty of Shakespeare and the great difficulty of Shakespeare, which is to make it constantly relevant, constantly understandable within a modern context of the way modern people speak, the rhythms of modern language, and yet you're trying to, to fit this very archaic language and this very poetic language into, you know, the modern world. Um, and it is a constant challenge. And, and I, I think for that reason, I mean, it's probably the same for French actors playing Racine or... Um, you know, any, any, any language playing their classical theatre. You know, Shakespeare is our classical theatre. Um, I think we're, we have, personally, I feel we have the great advantage 
in the British language of having the greatest playwright. I, I think. I the think French, the French might not agree, but well, maybe. Well, I don't know. I, 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 don't, I don't know. know. I, I, I don't wonder. Know. I, I think maybe the French would agree. Would agree. Actually, I, I think, um, but that would be um, the first time they would agree about something <laughs> like that. <laughs> This is true, but uh, you know. Anyway, yeah, it's not a competition, but yeah. you know. But if there was undoubtedly a, a very, very great uh, um, um, poet and 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 observer of life and and under uh, an understanding of human psychology. Uh, which you so want to communicate to the audience, and it's damn difficult, you know. Because? Because of the archaicness of the language, you know. I can't understand Shakespeare when I read it on the page. I'm a very strong believer in the fact that children, young people, I should say, should have their first experience of Shakespeare, should be a, a, um, a, 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 an experience of watching it in the theatre. Uh, or watching it being acted. Certainly, that was my sort of first experience. Let, let's um, go to that experience because you've 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 mentioned it in the past. You've written about it in your book. You were twelve or thirteen. Yes, I'm twelve or thirteen. Yes, I, I think so. Yes, sorry. Um, and yes, uh, and my mother. There was an amateur production in, in our local. Um, Uh, theater, lovely old Ed Edwardian theater, but very run down, you know, and very sort of tatty. But um, they had a uh, amateur production of Shakespeare, which for some reason my mother thought uh, of of what of Shakespeare. Oh, sorry, of Shakespeare, of um, Hamlet. No, 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 of Hamlet. Hamlet. Let's bring up slide one. I just want to show one particular Hamlet that I very much like. <laughs> I mean, just to see Buster Keaton. In, oh, it's Buster. Like, uh, oh, I said, who is she? I was going uh, to yeah. say, who is she? But <laughs> well, isn't, isn't, that, this isn't the that just fantastic? It is fantastic. 1922 daydream. Yes, it's fantastic. Absolutely wonderful. But... You know, so you were you were twelve or thirteen. I was twelve or thirteen, and and um, and the cost they were costumed rather like that actually, very sort of traditional costuming. Only because it was an amateur production, I do remember all their tights were sort of wrinkled, <laughs> round the bottom. They hadn't discovered the famous penny, you know, the 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 trick with tights for men, I guess for women as well, you know, is to put a penny in. In your in the waistband and wrap it and tighten it up and then fold it over and then your tights don't fall down. Apparently, well, I, I, I'm telling you. See, this is what is one in I, the days before lycra. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, all their tights. I do remember their tights were sort of pooling around their ankles. But this didn't detract me. Distract me from uh, from the unbelievable excitement of watching the play of Hamlet, basically not knowing what happens in the end, not knowing that Ophelia goes mad, you know, having, if you watch Hamlet purely as a thriller, if you literally don't know what happens, can you imagine, I mean, it's so exciting. And I was utterly, utterly transported. Um, and came back, and I remember my, my parents had one of those big, uh, not big, actually quite small, but those complete works of Shakespeare. Um, 
like the first folio we've just seen, but the, those really thin um, pages, you know, because there's uh, thousands uh, yeah, of pages uh, and really small print. In French, they call it papier bible. Yes, so that really, really, really thin, really, really thin paper, and 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 starting to read it. And of course, it's it's very difficult to read. Still, I I find um, Shakespeare incredibly difficult to read on the page. But but I wanted to, it and it and it sort of led me into this imaginative, wonderful, imaginative world of characters and storytelling and drama that was so, so different from the, the little um, street that I was growing up in, um, in it South End you, on CNS. It took you away from that street yes, in it, some it, way. Yes, it, it opened up a sort of, a, a, just a, an exciting, imaginative world um, that was, as I say, so far from the sort of um, normal suburban sort of world that I was growing up in. I mean, all of those things, I'm sure, were happening behind closed doors, but <laughs> at the age of 13, I didn't know that. It but gave you... It gave <laughs> you the, uh, yeah. But um, no, it was just wonderful. So I went back and I started reading, and not the obvious. I didn't... I wasn't, uh, I wasn't drawn to Romeo and Juliet, um, but I was drawn to The Tempest, I was drawn to Joan of Arc, you know, Joan of Arc written as a mad witch in the Henry VI, part three, I think it is. Um, I, Caliban, in particular, you know, was a character that I, I was incredibly drawn to, and it's just these fantastical creatures, and I, it was amazing. So that you, you, you quickly referenced the Shakespeare you saw the folio we, we showed you before coming down here. I, I wonder what it felt like for you to see these manuscripts. Well, it's always, you know, it's, it's an amazing moment where, where you, you have a direct physical contact to that world because, you know, so much of our contact to that world is, is imaginative and, and if you literally see the artifact that was there, not actually when he was alive, but very shortly after he died, and the very reason that we have those plays, uh, that we can rehearse and, and read and learn the lines, um, it, that, that's an amazing thing, beautiful thing. To have that tactile feeling, to, I, I remember that just two weeks ago, we had occasion to show Roseanne Cash that very same Man, the, the very same folio, and she said, you know, Shakespeare didn't touch it, but probably Ben Jonson Yes, did. yes, yes. And it's, it's also, it looks so fresh, doesn't yeah. it? It's and amazing. It, and it needs no electricity. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> um, you, you, you mentioned that Shakespeare remains obscure to you, that some of it remains incomprehensible. It's incomprehensible until you start speaking. That's why I feel so strongly that, uh, you know, as I say, young people's first experience should be with it being spoken, preferably by a, a good actor or a, an actor who, <laughs> who can handle the language. But it, it's, just, it's, it's just such a different experience, and it, it can be so boring on the page. I remember, you know, when we started learning Shakespeare in school, um, we would take turns in the class reading, 
you know, reading a scene like this, everyone would take like five lines or something. I am, was, I'm right there with you. Oh, yeah. it was so unbelievably, horribly boring. <laughs> you know, it was just horrible. And, and it would sort of put you off Shakespeare for life. So, so a, a, a teacher should, instead of doing that, just take... Take kids to see it. And now you've got film of Shakespeare. Um, How does it translate? It doesn't matter if it's an amateur it? production. Obviously better if it's a wonderful production, but really I, I think that in a way doesn't matter. Um, but to see it spoken and made sense of, some kind of sense, psychological sense, imaginative sense. I want to take you on a, on a journey backwards. And... Um, Talk about your, your origins. You were mentioning a little bit the town in which you grew up and being 12 and 13 and discovering Shakespeare and how, how that production of Hamlet took you out of the space in which you, you lived. But before that, I want to talk about your, your parents and your grandparents and the Russian background. Mm. And, and my London yeah. background, because I am half, I'm half Russian, but I'm also half... Londoner, yeah. you know, real Londoner, West Ham, actually. Um, so my mum was a sort of, uh, you know, real old, came from an old London, working class London family. Well, not really working class, more tradesmen. If we can look um, at the image too. Oh, yes, that's the Russian bit. Yes, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's, I find it, that's my grandfather on the right of that image with the cap on. Uh, he's, he's in his military uniform. He was in the military. And I, I, it's extraordinary that that is my grandfather. Because we're looking at Chekhov, aren't we? I mean, absolutely <laughs> Chekhov. And that was the world. Chekhov was very much the world that my grandfather came from. The sort of um, upper middle class-ish, sort of uh, educated class, you know, dasher in the country. Uh, that's where they are, they're in the, they're at their dasher. Um, and it, it's extraordinary that I'm sort of old enough <laughs> to have a grandfather who is <laughs> in, in, in that era. Um, yes. <clears throat> but, um, you know, I... I my, my Russian side is, is absolutely what it is. And, but I think, actually, the reason I'm an actress is actually more because of my mom, actually, than my, uh, my dad. Um, because? Oh, because she was more dramatic. And she more was, dramatic than she the Russian side. more dramatic side. than the Russian, believe yeah, it or not. Yeah, I know. Yes, absolutely, <laughs> I know. Um, uh, but uh, she was, and also she was the dreamer. Uh, uh, she was self-educated. Um, she left school at 14, you know. Um, but she was, you know, by the time I knew her, if you like, um, she was pretty well educated. She completely educated herself. And, and she was am ambitious and a dreamer and, and, um, uh, and romantic. And I, I, I think that my acting sort of um, yearnings probably come from her rather than my dad. Do you, do you my, my dad was artistic, yeah. very artistic. He was a musician, um, played the, the viola yeah. um, before he became a taxi driver. But um, That's another story. That's another story, yeah. 
do you feel that there is a place you you feel an allegiance to? Do you do you feel do you feel that England is your home? I feel But London is my home. I feel like a Londoner, definitely. Um, I mean, I do have. A, I've been to Russia a few times, and I, and I, you know, I don't know if it's just in my imagination. It probably is, but um, I I look quite Russian um, when I'm there. I kind of look quite like you I belong the there. I look the yeah. part, yes, exactly. Um, uh, but I I feel something quite powerful inside of me which is related to the landscape of Russia. Um, I mean, the first time I went to Russia was um, in the dark days of communism, when communism, I went with the Royal Shakespeare Company. We did a tour there. And um, it was the second uh, art, you know, art artists, uh, what do they call it? You know, collab, not collaboration, but um, where they'd centered. Exchange. Exchange, or, exactly. Yeah. You know, um, The, the Russian ballet were beginning to come here and they sent us, the Royal Shakespeare Company, to Russia to perform. Um, in fact, a play was done about Philby, Philby the spy, the famous British spy, the, the year before, the, the, the same company have gone, had gone the year before, or maybe two years before, and I think it was Coral Brown had had a meeting with Philby who'd come to see the play and, and someone wrote a play about that meeting. Um, and we were there two years later, and in fact, we were told that Philby did, had come to our production. Um, so, you know, that, that was an interesting time to be there, definitely. That was probably in the very late, like, 69, something like that, maybe 1970. Um, so, uh, that was my first experience of Russia, but it was very, you know... In dumped down by Bolshevism and uh, uh, so it was um, it was quite hard to sort of see the Russia that uh, was underneath that if you like let's, let's look at the images four and five if we could yes those are my photos yeah yes I took those photos Yes, of, of my hometown, Southend-on-Sea, which is like the Coney Island of Great Britain. Because <laughs> that's where I grew up. That's um, where Hamlet helped. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, that, that side of, of my hometown I, I enjoyed because it was sort of louche and razzmatazz. And, you see, I'm coming you know, back to the unruly side. <laughs> yeah. yes. No, I like no. that. You know, it's, a, it's a town that people, the working class of London, would go for the weekend to get very drunk and, and put a funny hat on and then have a fight <laughs> and, then ha and then throw up. And then go home on the train and go, yeah, that was fantastic. Let's do that again next week. Um, but, you know, it was... And they did. It, and they did, yeah. yes. And it was fun. I liked all that. But I meant those sort of long suburban streets of the same looking houses, one after another and after another. And, and you know, and that sort of feeling of... Uh, I don't know, of, of a, a kind of a repression that, that you can get in, in um, suburban communities, you know. Let's look at the, the next image, if we could. It's more of... Yes. 
You see the teddy boy there? You see the teddy boy with his dog? That's a real teddy boy. You, you don't know what a teddy boy is, I don't. do you? <laughs> a teddy boy, he's a teddy boy. He, they, wear, they wore, you know, draped jackets, crepe-soled shoes, and quiffs on their hair. They were teddy boys. I didn't know. I, no, I, don't, I don't know if Americans had teddy boys. Did you guys have teddy boys? No. I had lots of teddy boys. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. That's absolutely untrue. <laughs> We're going to talk a little bit about the early days of, of becoming a, a movie star. And you, you say in your book, press junkets were you are treated as a strange cross between a queen and a slave. <laughs> yes, it's true. And that's how you, how you felt. We'll look, we'll look at image number six, which comes also from your book. Mm -hmm. Yes, the paps. Or, no, not, they're, they're not paparazzi. They are um, photographers for ma newspapers. But what's interesting here is that you're seeing, one feels both sides in some way. Yes, yes. I, um, uh, you know, the, the very first time I confronted that sort of thing uh, was at Cannes Film Festival. And I was doing, I was working with Peter Brook in, in Paris at the time. And, you know, we were, um, we were, we were real, um, what's the word? Um, uh, you know, we were not paid a lot. And it was a, it was a, a um, work of love, not for money, you know, working with Brooke. We got paid, but, you know... We just. Were, just, yes. And we were living in, you know, funky little bedsitters spread around Paris and, you know, with very little money. And I had a film showing at Cannes and they asked me to go to Cannes. So I'd never been before and I went in my scruffy bohemian Parisian um, art actress, sort of esoteric actress kind of, you know, outfits. <laughs> and, uh, and first of all, the, the, um, uh, the film company were absolutely horrified, you know, they were just like, you can't be in Cannes looking like that, you know, so I said, well, I'm sorry, it's all I've got. So they said, oh, we have to buy you something. So I went with my uh, Russian boyfriend at the time, George Galitzin, and he said, oh, great, I've seen a pair of boots I want. <laughs> <laughs> so we got his boots, and, uh, <laughs> and we got a dress for me. Um, but anyway, so I got, now I'm dressed up in, a, in an appropriate you know, dress. And, you know, those steps up uh, to the cinema, it was, a, it was Lindsay Anderson's film, um, Oh Lucky Man, that was showing there. And, um, and all the photographers were up the side, and I'd never experienced anything like that before. And it was absolutely terrifying. I sort of walked up like this, you know, um, and got to the top. And I, I, was, I was literally shaking. shaking like this when I got to the top. So it's, it's quite invasive. It's quite, you know. And it but feels you get, Then you yeah. get used to it, and it's fine. I was going to ask, mm. do you do? Yeah. But I, I think... I think everybody here now is so much more used to being photographed than, than you lot would have been 
30 years well, they ago. Well, they're used to it and, and they do it all the time, Well, but exactly. Right? All I mean, of we, you take we, photographs yeah, of yourselves spend, or other yeah. people. So everyone's used to being photographed much more now than we kind of used to be. I mean, it's, it's, it's tremendous to walk the streets of any city now. You feel that that is one of the main activities happening. Is yes, people yes, are you know davening on the street, looking yes, at their yes. looking at their their cell yes, phones or taking yes. pictures of themselves. Yes. It's a highly charged narcissistic well, moment. That, well, it, but also it, you know you see in concerts and people people are not actually listening to the music, in, especially in pop concerts. Yeah. They're recording it, and that seems like so weird to me. You're here; it's live. You, you, now you're going to watch it in this little tiny so, so, thing so with you, so, bad sound. So like, you, why? But you, you wonder where people are. I mean, yes, the, the, there's, the, 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 there's this thing in between. And no, there's a wonderful line I've always loved of, of Susan Sontag where she's talking about traveling. And she's, I, I think in a way she's speaking of that discord we're evoking here. She says, just wait until now becomes then. You'll see how happy we were. Yeah, yeah. You know, which yeah. which seems so. I mean, it's so pungent for our times now, where where in some way one, we aren't always quite present. And I think what was magnificent. And also, it's a sort of desperate way to remember things. But actually, sometimes it's much better to remember things by remembering them, rather than by looking at a little phone. Oh, remember that wonderful day? Oh, where is it? <laughs> you know. Oh, yeah, ooh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, when, when I went to Africa with Peter Brook, I didn't take a camera. I regret it in many ways, because I would lo I love to have some of the extraordinary images that I saw with my eyes. I would love to have a copy of them. Um, but I didn't take a camera, and I didn't... I, I just... I have to remember it. I have to remember and what, you know the, the, what the, I saw. And, and the word remember is so powerful, mm. because it literally means to put the members back together. Oh, oh does know, it? To, yeah, to, that to, makes sense. Yeah. Remember, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You, 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 you mentioned it, and no, no, you, you caught me there, but you, you mentioned you, a few. Were you think the word member was the, was the problem, was it? Um, <laughs> <laughs> now, now, you're being now, naughty. Now. But, um, Sorry. <clears throat> Intellectual. Um, well, uh, trip to Africa. Yes. I mean, you mentioned it sort of in an offhand way. What did you do there with, with Peter Brook? I mean, why did you, why did you go to Well, to he was, what? you know, he had the very grand title of Le Centre de, le, le, le centre de Recherche Théâtrale or something like that. The Centre of Theatrical Research. And um, he was trying to find what is universal in theatre, absolutely universal, beyond language, beyond music, with no cultural references at all, to find out what everybody in the world reacts to. And guess what we found out? Guess what they all react to? Guess. 
Um, I would imagine language in some ways. No. No. Because we did it without language. Sex and violence. They all love sex and violence. We all love sex and violence. That was the one thing that was always a hit. Whenever we got into anything sexy or anything violent, the, 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 they loved it, absolutely loved it. Um, so... You found something universal. We found one, <laughs> exactly. We found the universal truth about humanity, sex and violence. <laughs> and poetry. And, and I have to say, a kind of poetry. Poetry that, well, not poetry so much as um, uh, inexplicable moments that, because you couldn't call it poetry because we were using no language, but there were moments when just something happened that was sort of poetic in form, and, and people did always respond to that as well. Um, but anyway, that, that was our, you know, that, that was what we were all engaged in, in that process of looking for these truths, theatrical truths, and, and you know, performing to people who didn't, theatre didn't exist in, in their world or their culture at all. They had griots which was fantastic to see this, because it was absolutely like going back to Shakespearean days of a balladeer who would travel from village to village telling the news in a ballad form, a song form. A way, um, a way to remember. Also. Oh, and a way to remember. But today, what's happening in, the, you know, the, in town or in the village, you know, guess who's you know, just fought with who, and, but the balladeers would travel, I'm sure you know this, from town to town. Well, it's similar in, in Africa, they have griots who would travel from town to town. They were always very theatrical. They would arrive with sort of, and they always arrived when we were there because I think they were worried that we were sort of competition. So, you know, they'd come in, they'd be, usually on a, on a horse, they sort of skid into the village, you know, what's going on here? <laughs> Um, and they always had sort of feathers and scarves, and they always looked fantastic. Um, but uh, uh, so that was the only form of theatre that the people we were playing to really had. Um, I mean, different because you know we travelled through quite a few countries, so um, you know obviously the culture changed. I don't have a, a, a photograph of that moment, though there are a few <laughs> in the book. I have one moment of a Peter Brook moment. Uh, if we could look at image number three. Yes, that's us in Africa. Yeah. That is it, was us. it in Africa? Oh, that's us. Yeah. Uh, I thought that was Paris, but I might be wrong. Uh, no, maybe that's in the banlieue in, yeah. in Paris. Maybe you're right. Um, because of the suits they're wearing. Yeah. So, yes. I think you're right. I think that's in the bon. Uh, we played in the, in the banlieue in in Paris. Um, <laughs> to great incomprehension, but um, to great incomprehension. Incomprehension, yes. And we also played here in New York. We played in the streets of uh, Italian neighborhood, the most difficult neighborhood. We played in a black neighborhood, and we played in an Italian neighborhood in. Bro deep Bronx kind of area. And the most difficult were the Italians. <laughs> oh, my goodness. They were like, oh, very difficult. 
I could just, ask you more about that. But oh maybe. no, you know, just out of control and just yeah. like re re very tough, very tough. Um, so yes, we did a similar thing here in New York. You decided not to go to to art school, not to not to go to theater school. To, to oh, I didn't yeah. decide not to go. I couldn't afford it. I, it was financially impossible for me. I would have loved to have gone to drama school, but um, my parents didn't want me to go. Uh, but also, it was financial. Was it, was it just a financial consideration? Um, or did you, well, did you... the financial thing was the thing that completely stopped me. If, if it was, had been financially possible, um, I suspect my parents would have wanted to dissuade me from doing that anyway. Um, because they quite rightfully thought it was a, um, a, a, an insecure profession. You know, and, they're, and they're right about that. If we look at image number seven, I think it might evoke something in your past. This is an, That's a painting. Uh, yeah, it's a painting it's by a, Edward, Edward Hopper. Hopper. Yeah. I've never seen that painting. That's wonderful. You know what that reminds me of? I have a suspicion. Oh, what do, what do you think it is? Um, why don't you say? <laughs> <laughs> It reminds me of losing the Olivier Award. No, it didn't remind me of that. But, um, <laughs> that was exactly how I was standing. I had been sitting down, and the uh, and the and the Maggie Smith won. <laughs> <laughs> and I got up out of my seat and I stood exactly like that, going, "Oh, my life's over. I'll never win an award." <laughs> It, it, it got better. I did get one eventually, but not for a long time. No, I thought that, <laughs> that reminded, exactly me, it... reminded me of a moment in, in your life where you were an usherette. Oh, yes, yes. Um, uh, that was in a cinema, yeah. obviously. Yes, not in a... Oh, that is a cinema, isn't it? Because you I think see so. the screen there, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yes, I was an usherette. And, and you were an usherette, and, and film started to take on an incredible importance in your life. I remember... Not, uh, I mean, um, I didn't go to the film, movies and films when I was young, Part, mostly for financial reasons. We, you know, couldn't afford to go. Um, <clears throat> and um, so... It, and also, the, the films that showed in Southend-on-Sea, you know, were just fifth-run, you know, horrible, sort of horrible Hollywood, 50s Hollywood movies, you know. And, and if I did accidentally go once, I found it so boring and uninteresting. So it wasn't until I... <coughs> I, I sorry. <coughs> I worked as a waitress in my aunt's um, bed and breakfast in Brighton. And um, I did the breakfast, and then I had the day to myself, and, and it was raining, as it usually is in England in the summertime, and I didn't know what to do with myself, and, and there was a cinema. And I went in just because it was a way of getting out of the rain. And the film that was showing was La Ventura, um, by Antonioni, and I'd never seen a movie like that before. And I was like, with uh, it, was my, it was my other great trans yeah. transformative moment was seeing 
um, Lavantura, um, like a, a revelation of what film could be. And from that moment, I, I saw every sort of foreign film I could possibly see. And working as a wait, um, uh, um, an usherette at the Everyman Cinema in Hampstead, which is a sort of quite a famous art cinema. I don't know if it still is. I think it still is, actually. Um, was a great way of seeing for free, you know, a lot of great movies. What, what, can you remember what it was in La Ventura that, that struck you? Because you're, you're describing it, it was, in a way in, in not dissimilar from the Hamlet moment. Yes, it was. It was. It, it was I think it was the Italianness of it and... It was the black and whiteness of it. It was the visual of it. Um, the beauty of Monica Vitti, who I then met much, much later. I was so excited to meet her. Um, I don't know. It was, just, it was just so different from those awful, you know, I think music, I guess the Hollywood musicals I must have been seeing, you know, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers or something. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it was just so different. <laughs> one, one more moment um, with Peter Brook. At the very beginning of the empty space, he says the following, in a living theater, we would each day approach the rehearsal, putting yesterday's discoveries to the test, ready to believe that the true play <clears throat> has once again escaped us. But the deadly theater approaches the classics from the viewpoint that somewhere, someone has found out and defined how the play should be done. And that's the deadly theater. Yeah. Yes, again, kind of right, because... Well, it's an eternal struggle. And, and, and playing Shakespeare clarifies the struggle for you because you have this great requirement of technique, um, vocal technique, breath, technique of breath, um, again, combined with this difficult language that you're trying to negotiate your way through in a, in a way that's understandable for the audience, and yet, at the same time, make it psychologically true, and, as well as all of that, making it completely, reinventing it each time you come to it. There was a very great yeah. um, Shakespearean actor called Alan Howard, and I was lucky enough to be in, in the company at the same time as he was. And he had that ability, not every night, but sometimes he, his, he had an extraordinary voice and, um, and an incredible ability with the language. But some, you know, I'd watch him play the same scene many, 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 many times. And often he would just turn a line in a new way that you'd never heard before. And that's sort of what Brooke is talking about, I think, there. Is that's, that's what you yearn for and, and you fight for as a, as a classical actor. And how does it happen? That's called art. That's art. You know, my great inspiration for acting, uh, because when you're young, especially, you know, I was thrown in, the, in at the deep end at the age of 20, 
two, as soon as I left college, 21 actually, um, I, I, was with, I was working with the Royal Shakespeare Company in a big theatre with basically no training. So, um, you know, I was sink or swim. So I, for the first five years, which is why I stayed there for five, six years, I was struggling with, with how to do it, just how to do it. Um, and, and it was, you know, I, I beat myself up on, an, on a daily basis. Um, and then I read this book called Interviews with Francis Bacon, the painter. If you and could I found look at image very... 15. Mm. Yes, yes. And, and there it is, in a way. He, he speaks in his book about, um, ab about the fact that all seven-year-old children are genius painters, every single one of them, genius artists. And then something happens. Well, no. His point is, if you're still drawing the way, at the age of 20, the way you did when you were seven, you're actually mentally retarded, you know, <laughs> because you have to learn. And he says, then you go through, as a, a, a professional artist, then you have to go through this incredibly painful period of learning technique, learning how to draw, learning how to paint. And, and then you get paralyzed by your technique, and this was exactly what happens, I suspect, in every art form, um, certainly in my, in my case, in acting. You get paralyzed by your, the learning of the technique. But then, he said, and then once you learn, once you have your technique, and you have it so well that you don't even have to think about it anymore, now you can let go of your technique, and now you can rediscover the seven-year-old painter that was all instinct and freedom, and, and he calls it learning, learning the good accident, because you, then you it's understand. It's so fantastic. Which is no, so I fantastic. Mean, it's so fan it's and I must say, as a, <clears throat> as a book about the process, um, Sylvester's book is possibly the best interview I have ever read. Anywhere. It was Sylvester, the yeah. person... Yeah, Sylvester, David Sylvester interviewed, oh, I didn't know that, uh, yes. interviewed Interview, Francis Bacon. Oh, yes, it's great. And they're just it's a good so... Book. Yeah, very good book. Mm. Highly recommended. Um, we can look at a few images of, of uh, 16, maybe. <clears throat> it was interesting working with, um, working with Robert Altman. And I felt there I was working with a director, a film director, who had, was in a sense like Francis Bacon because he understood the technique of filmmaking, the cameras, the, the, the how to cut a film together, the, the um, you know, the, uh, uh, the lenses. He just knew it without even thinking. He didn't have to think, you know, that lens should be here. He, he just knew it. And because he knew it so well, he could improvise. You know, it's very difficult to improvise on a film set because it's a very technologically heavy place. It's not easy to... You can't quickly change, a, you know, an angle. Um, but he had that ability to... Um, to be free. In to be free within this very restrictive 
technical world. So, in some way, audacity is possible when you arrive at that moment. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. I, I mean, I don't know that I ever got there. I don't think I did, really, as a some, Shakespearean Some people actress. might disagree. Well, but I do, I do remember I was doing Henry VI part... I played Queen Margaret in Henry VI, uh, which is, um, you know, it, it's, it's quite a vocally demanding um, role. There's one very, very long speech with a lot of describing, um, description in it. Um, Come make him stand upon this molehill here. It's, it starts off and it's very vicious. How does it continue? I don't know. I can't okay. remember. <laughs> I can never remember Shakespeare. I can, you know, when it, if someone was saying it, I'd remember it, but I, all I remember is that first line. Um, and, um, and I was doing this speech on the stage in, in Stratford-on-Avon, and suddenly I felt like I was in control of it. And it was like being on a stallion, a, a racehorse, you know. And... I, I can't ride, you know. And, you know, when you're out of... You, you can't control a horse. You, you don't know what you're doing. You're sort of bobbling about, just about getting there, but, you know, just by, by sheer luck. And suddenly I felt I was complete control of this very powerful horse, which is what Shakespeare can be, this amazingly muscular, powerful beast. And I felt I had it under control, and it was an amazing feeling, fantastic. So I felt I got there once, but probably only once in my whole career. <laughs> but isn't it but also quite extraordinary that <clears throat> it is a painter who made you understand yes, your yes. craft? Yes. Well, because as you said, what is that? I, and I said, and it's I, art. Yeah. And, and, well, you know. I, I often think of that line of Leonard Cohen I so much love when he says, if I knew where inspiration came from, I would go there more often. Well, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> None of us know, of course. Absolutely. I mean, but, but, the image, but the image you have of the horse is perfect. <clears throat> Something happens between you and the movement. Something well, between you and your technique, it's, it's, you know, so much of it is, is, is literally to do with technique. And the great artists practice. You know, I was, uh, I was doing a play and the great Tony Bennett came to see the play recently here in New York. And I was, you know, actors are always obsessed with their voices, as singers are. And um, I was saying, you know, what do you do to to practice, you know, to, to uh, prepare your voice. He said, well, you know, I do exercises. So I said, oh, well, what do you do? He said, I'll send you um, what I do. And he sent me the CD, which was Bel Canto. I don't, probably, I don't know if there are musicians um, uh, amongst you, but Bel Canto is these <laughs> unbelievably difficult, you know, vocal exercises. Very, very, very challenging vocal exercises. I no, I couldn't go near them. It was right, real, really. But this is uh, Tony Bennett does these exercises, you know, every to this day. day. Oh, absolutely. So, no, I pure remember. exercise is is the foundation, you know, preparation exercise. 
it is the foundation upon which hopefully you then you know can present something surprising what is your what are your exercises i'm very lazy <laughs> i am i'm terribly lazy i mean i do do a, a vocal exercises when i'm in the theater um you're very lazy slothful you see that was one yeah, of my yeah. one of my descriptions of myself yeah <laughs> You probably get pleasure out of, of being lazy. Um, no, I don't. I feel guilty. I don't. I feel terrible, but it doesn't stop me. <laughs> <laughs> sort of like, you know, St. Augustine who said, God, give me continence, but not yet. You know, sort of, you know. I want to come back for a moment. We will get to Shakespeare in a second, but I want to come back a little bit more to Robert Altman. Because working with him was completely different than the, the Hollywood system as you got to know it. And well, you know, he, he, he did I, I mean, every filmmaker, they all sort of do the same thing, you know, wide shot, close up, you know, two shot, close up, close up. Um, they, you know, it's, you have to do more or less the same thing, but every single filmmaker just puts their own personal touch you know, character and, and vision, as they say, vision and personality uh, onto the process. Um, Peter Greenaway, for example. Um, uh, but Altman, above all, there were two, two things with Altman. The first was that when we did, we did a, a film, I did a film called Gosford Park with you him. You can look at image 20. Yeah. Yes. There we all are. Downton Abbey. Not. <laughs> <laughs> written by Julian Fellows, but not Downton Abbey. Um, so, um, anyway, he shot all the upstairs stuff. With the, the, those are all the downstairs people, aren't they? Yes. Uh, but he shot the whole upstairs story first, and then he moved downstairs and shot the whole downstairs story. Uh, so he'd shot half the movie, and then it was middle time, and then we were going to do a, a big photo shoot with the whole cast. So all the upstairs and downstairs people happened to be on the set for the one and only time together. And we came, and, and we were having lunch. I saw him sort of looking at me, and then looking at Eileen like this. And then he said, I've just had a thought, I think I'm going to make you sisters. We weren't sisters in the original script. He'd shot half the movie. <laughs> But he hadn't shot any of our stuff. And he said, I think I'm going to make you sisters. And, you know, that's sort of unheard of halfway through a film. Normally they'd have to ring the studio, you know, and so on. So, so that was one thing. And then the fantastic other thing... Fantastic story. Fantastic. Yeah. And then the and other it, thing that happened was we had, I had a scene with Kelly McDonald and... He didn't rehearse a lot, um, uh, Robert Altman, really at all, actually. So Kelly and I, were, our scene was coming up, and it was seen between the two of us, and we were both getting sort of a bit nervous about it. So we said, why don't we have a look at it together? And we looked at it, and we read it together in, in one of our trailers, and not with Robert there, he was shooting, and we were going... Talking, was saying, what, what, what's this scene about? Do you understand what it's about? And Kelly said, no, I don't understand what it's about. I said, neither do I. I mean, what's it there for? I don't get it. So, um, 
that now the next day we're shooting the scene and we go down onto the set in our costumes and Robert says, so what do you think about this, this scene? And we say, um, we don't really know. We don't really know um, what it's about, really. Um, and then I was very bravely said, I don't think we need it. I don't think the film needs this scene. I don't see what it does. And he said, you're right, let's cut it. <laughs> <laughs> <But> <laughs> so that was fantastic so because, you know, we were great because we don't have to play a scene that we don't understand. But then later on, I said to uh, Robert, I think there's a scene missing. And I think it's a scene between Eileen and I at the end of the movie. And I, I feel that this story needs a resolution and it's not in the script at the moment. And, um, and again, he said, I think you're right. Why don't you go off and write it? So, <laughs> so Eileen and I went off and we improvised it together. I was about to say, it. this is true improvisation. In, in yes, a, in a, yes. In a sense. I mean, we wrote and, it. And, we wrote no, but, it out but, of our improvisation. But the fact that he he had the confidence to tell you, he had the confidence to tell you, to cut you're the scene right, and then to put another scene in, and, and exactly, and, and uh, check in with you to see what you what you thought. I, I yes, heard, yes, I heard yes, from a number of people yes. that um, when he was shooting shortcuts, he would he would get his cast together and just say, well. Look at, let's look at the dailies and let's see what we, what we think about them. Yes, he was very, very inclusive, wonderfully inclusive and wonderfully confident, a huge confidence to be able to do that sort of thing and, and think on his feet and it like gave that. And it gave yeah. you, it, by osmosis, it probably gave you that as well. Mm. When, when we were speaking on the phone a few, a couple of weeks ago perhaps, I, I asked you, as I often ask various people I'm lucky enough to talk to, what some of your favorite things were. And this was one of them, if we could look at video number two. 250.000 prodotto, giorni, altri 15 giorni, immediatamente le posso fare la prima rata, gliela do subito, dov'è lì? Perché la si tu Alberto, non ce la sai, sarà già c'è l'istà, torno subito, immediatamente glielo do, sono 2 milioni, lei capisce 2 milioni che lei prende, e poi una migliorata di video al giorno, nessuno gliela leva, fa cestino, tutta sta roba qui, guardi lei non può dare un calcio alla fortuna, è una cosa che capita una volta solo nella vita, le faccio la cortesia, ma la fine. E va E come la volete la ragazzina, coi capelli ricci o coi capelli tesi? E alla fischia all'essere per zagagliare, come per farete di più? Non vi siete divertiti abbastanza, tutti. Quanto mi dispiace perché, perché mi piaciate. Non l'ho messa al mondo per far divertire nessuno. Per me suo padre è tanto bello. È tanto bello. Andate, 
Mándale. Mándale. Es bellísima. Pero cuando you when you when you when you saw Anna Maniani, mm. you just went ah. Oh. Yes. What? Well, she's my heroine, my my, my But I, I also heroine. see your your eyes tearing up seeing this. Yes, yes. Um, she's just so um, she's such a goddess, and there's something about the Italian language as well, which just I just love, and. Uh, uh, The combination of the Italian language, the Italian people, the Italian stories like that, I, I just, it, 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 it always affects me. And, And she is acting. my great goddess of, um, of film acting. I never saw her on stage. She performed on stage many, many times. She was an amazingly accomplished stage actress. But I only ever, ever saw her, obviously, on film. But I know you might say, that's art, <laughs> but... Is it, is it possible for you to to express what it is in the quality of her acting that makes her a goddess for you? Ah, oh, well. I know. I know these no, are these are not tough, these are mean, difficult questions and maybe should not be asked, but I'm trying. I know, I, I, because it's um, you know I, I've always said my great inspirations for film acting are babies and animals and Anna Magnani. Because it, it, there's a presence, and it's what you... you We're back to that. The, a presence. Uh, uh, um, uh, you know, there's this awful actory phrase, in the moment, it's called. But um, it's that absolute presence um, that... Uh, it, it's kind of indescribable. Um, also, her face, you know, the nose, the, 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 the beauty of her without being... You know, classically pretty. Um, uh, her power. Um, and the romance, I think. The romance of the whole sort of working class Italian thing is sort of romantic to me. <laughs> But um, I never tire of seeing her. Great movie, Bellissima. You should see it if you. It's about this stage mother, you know. She just wants her kid to be successful. It's great. And the kid's terrible. She can't act at all. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, it's so painful. On to yeah. something quite different. I'd, I'd love us to see image 19, if we could. Kandinsky. Another great inspiration. Again. 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 Um, uh, Chaos, not chaos, no, not chaos, that's not the right word, but, but action and apparent improvisation, but with incredible control, actually incredible control. I absolutely love Kandinsky. When we spoke on the phone, you also mentioned that you were, you were proud of, of one moment in particular, and I, I want us to see if we could see video number three. Oh yes, yes, I'm Rand, right. Which I had not seen. What is the nature of love? 
Yes, young man, yes, I have thought about this. Love is a command to rise to one's highest potential, the best and noblest vision of ourselves. Love is a reward, the greatest we can earn, granted to us for the moral qualities we have achieved in our lives. Ayn Rand, that is, yes. Well, me being Ayn Rand, yes. Do you, do you find it necessary to empathize with your characters? Um, uh, yes, yes. Or emotionally understand them, yes. You, 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 uh, I, mean, I mean, there are... There are characters that I think I would find it impossible to play, maybe. But, um, what, but what even those, I think you have to... Well, Rosemary West, you wouldn't know who that I is. I don't. She was the wife of a, and of a man who um, tortured and abused children, including his own children, and killed, murdered. I think six people. I mean, they were, they were engaged in one of those horrendous, horrific relationships uh, of um, sexual abuse. Um, so, someone like that would, would be very difficult to... But, you know, our job as actors is to enter into all human conditions, you know, and, and to try and be honest about them. Um, I guess like a, a doctor or a, or a psychologist, you know. Or that, a judge. Uh, or a judge. A, a judge. No, not a judge. We're not, not there ju to judge. No, no but a judge um, in, in the court of law would have to in some way feel what it was to walk in somebody else's shoes. No, I, think, I don't think that's what judges do. I think judges... <laughs> I think judges say, you're going down. Uh, <laughs> um, actors, actors maybe would be the defense lawyer. That's who right. the actor would be in the courtroom. Saying, but your honor, don't you understand? This boy was abused. He was abused at the age of four. Think of the two-year-old child who's being beaten and sexually abused. Think of that two-year-old. And th that is the man you see before you. That's what an actor would do. You've um. convinced me. <laughs> but um, how did how did you prepare? So it's not empathy. Yeah, it's no. not like say oh, but you you have to um, absolutely you know negotiate your way through the psychology of whatever character. Because in this particular this particular character is a complicated one. I'm yeah. wonderful character. Wonderful. Personality. I didn't know anything about her. Did you read her, her a lot? No, I didn't bother reading her. Actually, terrible. I should have done. See, I'm lazy. <laughs> <laughs> but I read about her a lot and um, and watched film of her, and she, she was so fascinating because she was so brilliant. Her brain was so brilliant, and. Um, 
so much uh, uh, and and so you know controlled and and uh, you know um, everything was about objectivity. We have to be objective about everything. And when it came to love, she was as hopeless and as helpless and as useless as everybody else, you know, and and as um, ig blind about herself. That's why herself. I wanted to show that passage. Yes, she was just yeah. wonderful. She fell madly in love with this younger man and it all ended disastrously and she couldn't handle it. It's just great. How did you? How did you? <laughs> how, how did you prepare to 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 play two queens? Oh, I've played a lot, many more than two queens. Um, well, as you get older, somehow queens are the roles that you know are <laughs> are available. <laughs> so, you know, Cleopatra, Margaret. Uh, George, King George, uh, Queen Charlotte. Uh, but in one case, Elizabeth. You, yeah. But in one in in one case in one case you played a living queen. Yes, that's that was different. Yes, yes. And at that time when we did it, which was not so long ago, but actually it had never sort of been done before. And now there's a twelve-part TV series and all the rest of it. And um, but at, at that time it was sort of like, oh, are we allowed to do this? Um, did you get to meet her? I, I had met her briefly before we did the film, and I've met her pretty briefly after doing the film. But I haven't spent, you know, um, uh, time with her particularly. But you will again soon. I, I read you. You're going yes. to celebrate her. Yes, yes. Her 90th birthday. Yes, absolutely. Yes, a horse pageant. Is it, is it formidable to to be in her presence? Um, formidable is not the word, but I get, I get, it's a bit like when you meet a big movie star, and I always get a bit sort of movie star-itis, you know, one, one, and one. I get queen-itis, what I call queen-itis, when I meet the queen. You suddenly are incredibly self-conscious about where your hands are, and, and weird words come out of your mouth that you, <laughs> that you think, I don't talk like that. Well, you know, um, on this... It's like terribly amusing. On this stage, on, the, on this stage, I, I interviewed a, a photographer named Thomas Stroot, who photographed the Queen. Mm -hmm. And I want to show an image that he took. It's image number 10. Lovely image. And this I would have thought that was Annie Leibovitz, but no, no because her, her shots, it has that Leibovitz kind of feel. I, I want to read to you what is behind that shot. Yes. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, it comes from a book by Janet Malcolm, um, a, a, not a book, um, a review in, yes, in the New Yorker. Here she's quoting Thomas Drews. While I was there, I said, I want to see the dresser, the woman who is in charge of the queen's wardrobe. Because the second thing I noticed when I looked at the past photographs of the queen was that many of the dresses she wears are very unfortunate. <laughs> she has quite, this is Thomas Drews, 
She has quite big boobs. Mm. And she, she does, often yes. wears something that goes up to the neck. And then there is a stretch of fabric under the face that makes it look small. The day before the sitting, Struth continued, the dresser came in with 20 dresses. She was a very nice woman, and we had an immediate chemistry. I felt that she saw me. Later she told me, the queen, that I was okay, that I was a nice guy. I selected the dress, a pale blue brocade with garlands, a bit shiny, and it matched nicely against the dark green. I asked if the queen accepted his choice, and he said yes. He did not choose the duke's costume except to ask for a white shirt. At the sitting, the duke wore a dark suit and a blue tie. He was perfect, Struth said. In further preparation, Struth read a biography of Elizabeth, and I felt sympathy. They were my, my parents' generation. She was exactly my mother's age, and Philip was born in 1921, two years after my father was born. He added, I said, okay, the commission for reasons I cannot name, but I thought I'm going to have sympathy for these people. And I, I just, in, in, in looking at that photograph and in seeing how Struz prepared for that shot, I wonder how you prepared to play her. Well, I how, think... How um, does one... You know, how the clothes one... are very important. I remember when I had my first costume fitting for the Queen and they laid all these sensible shoes out, kilts, barber jackets, headscarves, and these sort of dresses, as he describes. I cried. <laughs> I cried. I thought, I can't play anyone who'd wear the, these clothes. It's just, you know, I, I can't do it. I can't fit in I can't them. fit in that. But then, as I started, you know, doing my research and getting closer and closer to, to the Queen, as, as, as far as I could, I realized two things. I realized that, number one, her clothes are always, and our costume designer was wonderful, in the sense that every dress I put on was fitted me absolutely perfectly, as they do for the Queen. They are totally made, made for her, so everything fits absolutely perfectly. And they're all made out of, forget what they look like, it's what they feel like. And they're made out of unbelievably beautiful fabrics and then lined with incredibly expensive silk. So when you put them on, I mean, these were costumes that were made for me, they weren't the Queen's clothes, but um, I, I suspect that's her experience the feel of, it's movie stars. I don't know if you've ever met a movie star, male movie star. You look well, I've at them. Met, I've met one. Well, have you ever touched them? <laughs> no, not like that. Okay. <laughs> like this. I mean, when you touch a movie star, they look like perfectly ordinary. They've got tweed jacket, you know, norm I'm talking about the men. And then you touch them and you realize, oh my God, that's unbelievable fabric. <laughs> It looks like really ordinary, you know, jacket, but actually it's like the 
best cashmere you can possibly buy. <laughs> Next time you meet a movie star, touch. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, that's beside the point. Um, well, not really. You know, not really. They were um... be beautifully made. But then I, you know, the Queen is completely uninterested in clothes. She's not at all vain or she, I, she, I, I suspect she never did. I think she always was happiest in jodhpurs and, you know, and a riding thing and that was it. Now she's happiest in her walking shoes and her kilt and her thing and her barber. Um, that is a uniform. It's like a policeman wearing a uniform. She's wearing her uniform. She doesn't care what she looks like in it, as long as it's the right thing for the right moment. And this dresser that she has now is brilliant. You know, whenever you see the Queen, the colour that she's in, she always stands out. That's all you need. You need to know where the Queen is. Oh, there she is, you know. Um, the colour has to be right, has to be bright, um, light. Uh, and she's in her Queen's uniform, her, her costume. It's her costume. She's wearing her costume. It's not what she wants to wear. I think so, it's he... I think he captures that in the photograph. Yes, he if captures he... that formality, and, and they're in the palace, and, and you know, there they are. I, I think it's a, a lovely photo. I love the green thing they're sitting on. And the Duke looks wonderful, doesn't he? But no, it's lovely. But I think also what he's saying about the generation, and I did feel that, and, and that is, you know, I am absolutely an Elizabethan. The Queen has been in my life longer than any other person except for my oldest, elder sister. So she has been absolutely consistently in my life throughout my whole life. Um, I was, I think, seven when she was crowned. Um, so, you know, she's, she's been there. Europe. She's been a part of... I'm totally an, a, a member of this Elizabethan age from beginning to end. And when my... And I think that's what I so respect, if you like, about the Queen. It's not the fact she's the Queen, but it is that generation. That generation... That's very powerful. It's very powerful yeah. for me, yeah. as a Londoner. They went through the Blitz, you know. They went through the, the, the Depression. Um, they went through everything that my parents went through. So I feel... You know, I feel very kind of emotionally connected in, there. In closing with, with some Shakespeare of your own, mm. I'd like us to look at video six, number six, and for you to comment a little bit about that role.
potion that works so strongly. Never till this day saw I her touched with anger so distempered. You do look, my son, in a movie sort as if you were dismayed. Be cheerful, sir. Our revels now are ended. These, our actors, as I foretold you, were all spirits. They melted into air, into thin air. And like the baseless fabric of this vision, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, yea, and all which it inherit shall dissolve. And like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rat behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made of. We are such stuff as dreams are made of. Our little life is rounded. Our little life is rounded with a sleep. One of the greatest speeches in Shakespeare. I am vexed. If you be pleased, retire unto my cell and there repose. A turn or two I'll walk to still my beating mind. We wish you peace. peace. See, it's terrible putting Shakespeare on film because you want to do it again and again and again and again to, to do, to find, you know, new parts through it. And you were doing it again as yes, you were watching yes. that. You, I you did just... that speech at Stratford just a, a few nights ago. Yes, at the Shakespeare Live. Stratford. But you know, when you were watching this and then you were reciting it, um, I felt the same emotion that you had when you were seeing Magnani. Somehow well, Shakespeare in your mouth is, uh, and you know, it, it was wonderful to be able to have the opportunity to play Prospero. Um, and to, 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 just to have those words and those thoughts, those words in your mouth, mouth and those thoughts in your head, um, it, it's, it's completely different from reading, reading it on the page. To enter into the truth of it is, is just such a different experience. Let me put you on the spot for one minute. Are there other such Shakespeare moments that you might know? Off by heart? Yes. No. <laughs> no. I only know that because I did that like, you know, two days ago. So um, it'll be gone by next week. Um, but no. I mean, it was interesting doing Shakespeare Live because actually I realised... I knew almost everything that anybody said that whole night um, because I have done a lot of Shakespeare um, and those words are in me somewhere. When I did Cleopatra for the second time, I've done it three times altogether. Um, I'd only done it, I'd done it with the youth theatre because I started out in the, you know, in the yeah. youth theatre in England and I played Cleopatra. I played it for one week and then I came back to, to doing it again um, 20 years later or something. And um, on the first day's rehearsal, I realized I knew the whole play. I knew the whole play off by heart. I didn't realize that I knew it, but I did. So you must know something now. <laughs> no, I, you know, I, I do. It's all in there, but, you know, I can't bring it out. 
you know, I, I, I just can't. Before we got on stage, you, you requested Yes, I requested passage. to find the Caliban because when I, when I was um, transported in my, you know, teenage, uh, 13, 14-year-old self, it, funnily enough, it was Caliban and this speech in particular that Can you see I just it? found I'm sorry so for this. amazing. We should have brought the folio no, down. No, yes, no, <laughs> would be good, wouldn't it? Be not afeard. The aisle is full of noises, sounds and sweet airs that give delight and hurt not. Sometimes a thousand twangling instruments will hum about mine ears, and sometimes voices that if I then had waked after a long sleep will make me sleep again. And then, in dreaming, the clouds methought would open and show riches ready to drop upon me that when I waked, I cried to dream again. I mean... Helen Mirren. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? Thank you so much. <laughs> Will you take you. a few questions? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great. I'd love to play Caliban. <laughs> Thank you. We have questions now, I think. We'll have a... We'll have a little We're going to bring a mic up here and we'll have maybe two or three very good questions. <laughs> if anybody has questions, because I know sometimes it's really hard Will to think of a bring question. The... Here we go. <clears throat> if there are no questions, we'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll try to press Helen Mirren for... Another recitation. <laughs> if you can come. So intimidating. Oh, um, don't be intimidated. Hi. Hi. Um, okay. I actually thought it was really interesting because I um, studied fashion, and when you talked about the queen and having it be a costume, do you feel that way when it comes to when you dress either in a movie, a play, your personal life? Is it something that you really enjoy, or do you feel like you have to be sort of Dame Helen Mirren versus who? I love costume. I absolutely love costume. I mentioned that in the, the big dresses, yeah. you know. Um, and I have had the incredible advantage in my life of having beautiful clothes made for me. Um, and, you know, the, the incredible pleasure of just wearing these gorgeously created objects that are objects of art. Um, costume houses, I love to visit costume houses and I wander up and down looking at all the costumes. I mean, obviously costume is incredibly important for an actor and, and it's the thing that, um, it's, it's your first building block when you're building a character, is the costume is the, your first building block. So it's, it's very, very important. Cool, thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> Hi. Hi. Um, you spoke a lot about the training and the technique that you go through. Um, I was wondering if, in going back to the horse analogy, the technique that comes in to ride it and to be a part of it, do we as an audience also have to have a technique that is practiced? And in this day and age of looking at things through a, a looking glass or through a different medium. Do we have the capacity to support you as you ride that horse? 
What an interesting question. Yeah. I, I wonder, I mean, what, what does the audience here feel? I mean, I mean definitely, um, it's, it's lovely to have an audience in front of you who have a, just an understanding of, of the, what it is we're doing together here, you know. Um, an audience who is quiet and concentrated, you don't want them too quiet and concentrated, but, you know, alive, but... But, um, <laughs> as opposed but, uh, to dead, <laughs> well, you yeah. know, as, or distracted. Yes, but you know, coughing sometimes it drives you crazy, and you think, well, why? It's, you know, it's funny in theatre, in music, people wouldn't dream of coughing. They're, they're very, when they're listening to music, people are very self-controlled because they understand how terribly distracting it is, um, and and people don't seem to have the same understanding in the theatre. Um, but, um, but, you know, we have to deal with what, whatever we're given. Um, uh, but um, I, I, I certainly believe live performance is going to be, become more important and more sought after the more we, we get buried in our iPhones and our iPads. The, the experience of live theatre, and, and certainly I think that's happening in music, you know, live music is very, very in demand. Um, so I do think this extraordinary relationship that we create between ourselves, the performer and the audience, um, is something that will continue to be very precious in, in, our, in our culture. Partly because it's ephemeral. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Mostly, be I guess, because it's ephemeral. Because, you know, you can only remember it. Um, you can only remember those great performances that you've seen. Hi, Paul. Kate, how are you? You did a great job. It's Kate. Kate. Hello. <laughs> no, I, I, you, I, I was blinded you by yeah. your aura. I was blinded, yeah. Um, Helen, hi. How are hi. you? This is Good. a question actually about ageing. Um, I'm a woman of a certain age and I'm actually going back into the workforce. And I wonder, as a woman in Hollywood, do you relish the opportunity to play kind of older women's roles? Or do you sometimes think, oh my God, why, why can't I get that role? You know, it's a younger woman's role, um, why can't I get it? Uh, uh, no, I, don't, I, I think the reality is that the if you're lucky enough to still be working, and that's another issue, um, but if you are lucky enough to still be working, then actually the roles are, actually become, are so much more interesting. The roles right. that I'm playing now are so much more interesting than the roles I played when I was 22, 23, 24, 25, you know. But, um, but there, is a, you know, there is a regret, absolutely. I mean, certain Shakespeare roles I will never play. I will never play Juliet. I never played Juliet, and I, and I would have loved to have played her. Um, you know, I'd love to have played uh, Beatrix. Um, and, you know, those roles... You can get away with a lot more in the theatre, luckily. But, um, uh, no, and... But I have always said, and I still say it, don't worry about roles for women in the theatre or in film or television. Worry about roles for women in real life and put your energy into encouraging those. 
because as night follows day, the more um, uh, inclusive women are in, in the real world, the better the roles will be in drama. And, and certainly that's sort of proved to be true. So, and will there be another prime suspect? <laughs> um, no, I don't think so, but maybe. <laughs> Hi, um, Hi, my name is Megan Tomei and I'm an acting student at um, the Tisch School of the Arts. And I was wondering if there was ever a moment in your career where you were like, I can't do this anymore, and then what kept you going? No, there wasn't a moment where I felt like that. I mean, often when you're in the middle of something and you're blowing it and you're hopeless and useless, and, and <laughs> then you feel, oh, you know. but. That very feeling is the thing that drives you on. And, and that feeling of, of, of inadequacy and not being good enough, and actually back, this is back to student actress. I've always felt that I, I always, every role that I play, I feel I've blown, I haven't done it well enough, and I think next time I'm going to be better. And, and that, it's absolutely that that drives me on, is trying, is a constant effort to learn uh, and to fight towards this perfect thing of freedom and technique. And we're always fighting towards that. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I was wondering if you could give us some recollections of James Mason oh, and yeah. what he was like as a man, as an actor, and perhaps if he taught you anything as an actress. Well, he was immensely kind to me. He was, he, he was in my, the first film that I did, which was a film that happened to be shot in Australia called Age of Consent, and uh, directed by Michael Powell. And um, he was the first, I mean, it's the first film I'd ever done, so I was utterly ignorant. He was so patient and, and kind and gentle. He was absolutely lovely, I have to say. Really, really lovely. Um, and I think he taught me kindness. I think he taught me that it's good to be kind to people who don't know what they're doing, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, you know, are, are ignorant. And it, it's really nice to be kind. And he gently taught me about hitting your mark and, you know, all that technical stuff you have to do in film. Um, so I have really, really great memories of him. I just want to say that it was, it was a pleasure to see your face light up when I mentioned his name. Yes, he was, he was a great man. He was a great man. Thank you. So we'll take three more questions. I just wonder if you could share your thoughts on who your favorite female Shakespearean characters are and why, and if we'll be lucky enough to see you perform any Shakespeare in the near future in New York. Um, well, not that I know of, that, uh, uh, you know, I haven't, but one never knows, you know, so any, anything can happen. That's the great thing about my, my, my profession, is that anything can happen at any time. You never know. Um, what you're going to be doing in six months' time. You know, it makes life very exciting. Um, but 
I sort of moved away from Shakespeare for, for quite a long time. I think I did so much of it in my early, you know, life as an actress. I, I sort of had had enough of it, you know. But now, especially being at Stratford, um, I'm thinking, oh, you know what, it'd be great to do Shakespeare again. But the reality is, actually, that um, the roles are not really there. It becomes very difficult. I don't want to play Volumnia. Thank you very much. Um, you know, so it's hard to um, find the role. So it's great. Now, roles like Prospero are, are, opening it up, are opening up for us, which is great. Thank you. Um, hi. When you talked about um, how you went to Africa and then you forgot to bring your camera, should I come closer? When you forgot to bring your camera, um, you regretted that. Um, are there any experiences that you really um, regret that you haven't captured, and could you share one with us? Any acting experiences that I regret, or experiences um, in general? When you were traveling, like in Africa, anything oh, that you wish you captured? Traveling, anything that I regret from Africa? Yes, something that you experienced. That um, it was very difficult. Africa was very difficult. It was physically difficult. It was emotionally very difficult um, because we were being challenged by one of the great, well, probably the greatest theatre director of the 20th century and working with him on a daily basis, which was incredibly psychologically challenging and, and um, artistically challenging. So I was, I was incredibly unhappy most of the time. Um, but, you know, I kind, of, I kind of got through it somehow. The thing I really regret about that whole trip, I've got this obsession about rubbish, I've realised. I've, maybe I've always had. Because at the beginning of the trip, we all had to decide what we were going to do, you know. I'll be in charge of the, you know, setting up the... the so I'll be in charge of setting out the food. I'll be in charge. So, so we all had to, you know, claim a task. I decided to claim the task for digging the ditch the, for the rubbish. <laughs> Why I decided that, I don't know. It was before we'd started, you know, when we, were, we weren't even in Africa. We were in Paris, you know. I thought... A, it sounded very noble, because it was sort of <laughs> what nobody else wanted to do. So, you know, I'd, I'd get brownie points for doing what nobody else wanted to do. And also, I hate trash, so I thought burying the trash would be a good thing to do. Well, of course, you know, the ground was as hard as cement. I couldn't, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't dig this much hole, you know. So in the end, my ex-boyfriend had to do it for me. <laughs> Bruce Myers, who was much stronger than I was. Anyway, that's what I regret the most about. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, I'd first like to say thank you so much for doing Tempest and Prospero. Uh, I think you've been a big part of opening up more of those roles. As much as I love Katerina and Beatrix, and many, I, I've always found myself more drawn to some of the, the male speeches and characters and stuff. Um, it well, luckily in Shakespeare, of course, you can do both. You know, you can play one of those great, um, you know, oh, like, yes. As you like it in... Yes, exactly. Yes, <laughs> Rosalind, <laughs> you know, and, and there are quite a few of those, yeah. 
Um, it kind of may go without saying, considering where we are and what we're speaking about, but I found in acting in the last 15 years or so, a lot of directors and acting professors and stuff seem to almost brush off Shakespeare as being important. I mean, I assume you think it's still important for burgeoning actors to memorize and learn and understand Shakespeare as well as some of the more modern 20th century um, playwrights and I such. I don't think it's necessary. No, I really don't. It, it, it's, if that's, if it rocks your boat kind of thing, <laughs> you know, if that's what you love. And, and it was very much Shakespeare that brought me into acting because I loved it. I thought it was, as I described earlier on, it, you know, it transported me in a way that maybe David Mamet wouldn't have done at the age of 13, or maybe he would have done. I don't know. I wasn't exposed to David Mamet. But um, I, I, I certainly don't think it's necessary at all. In the same, there's a huge spectrum of work, you know, to do, as in music. You know, not all musicians have to be able to play Beethoven. Do you know what I mean? But the people who love Beethoven and who are inspired by Beethoven and who have the technical ability to play Beethoven and have the desire to, to learn that sort of classicism, then of course that should be there for all of us to experience. But I, I don't think it's a necessary thing at all, no. I don't want it to go away. But I don't think it ever will, because I think there will always be young people like me at the age of 13 who see Shakespeare for the first time and go, oh my God, that's incredible. And it, it speaks to them in a way that other work doesn't. Helen Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the New York Public Library podcast. If you like what you hear, subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And please leave us a review. It really helps us out a lot. You can follow NYPL on Twitter or Facebook and sign up for our newsletter at nypl.org.